to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. The other night, we had gotten back from vacation in Jamaica, and we had watched the first two episodes of Halston before we left. Then we came back, and we put on Halston, and we were sitting there watching it, and I saw my guest. And I was saying to my wife, and we were both were saying how he's on so many shows, a purveyor of the craft of acting. And so I found him on Twitter, and I said, hey, I'd like you to come do Cooper Talk. And he obliged, and my guest is Jason Kravitz. How are you doing today? Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it's funny. You must hear this all the time. You're someone that, you're so, you're so recognizable, and I talk to so many different character actors that people sit there, and, you know, I'm sure there's people that know you from the practice, they know you from this or that. What do you get most recognized for? Other people's work. <laughs> uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of character actors out there. What do I get most recognized for? Probably at this point, it's a real mixed bag. Uh, right now, Halston is a big one, and uh, Startup, which was a a show that started on Crackle and is now on Netflix. I had an episode of that. I get a little bit of attention there. But I think overall, the big one besides the the practice is one that I used to get a lot, but it, it hasn't aired in a while. The one that comes up a lot, uh, the two that come up a lot, I should say, are Curb Your Enthusiasm. Where you know, if you're a Curb fan, you 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 know you'll have seen the episode that I was in. It was in like season eight, I think. And the other one I get, oddly enough, oh, is Girls comes up a ton because Gilmore Girls was in syndication. It came, I think it came out again on Netflix, and a whole new generation of of young girls started watching the show. And again, these are shows I only appeared on once or twice, but you know. I got a familiar face, so people think I'm, you know, a lot of times I get recognized as, uh, hey, do you live in Massapequa? Did you, go to, did you go to Yale? Is your name Scooter? Yeah, I get a lot of that, too. It's funny, the late, great John Polito told me he would get recognized, like, at the airport. He would always exactly know what people would recognize him for. He's like, someone will come up and he goes, they know me from Homicide, or they know me from this. And I think what happens is, you know, because character actors, as I always say, you guys, you guys are the backbone. You're like, you're like the middle infield of a show. You know, you got, you need you to survive. And I think what happens is people get confused. Some people look like some people, you know, it's like I'm bald too. So, you know, people go, oh, okay, there's someone, people say to me, they go, are you on TV? I go, no, I'm just a bald guy with glasses. But it's just, it's, it's funny. So I have to ask you, and I've been asking a lot of actors this, you know, you got, you've been around for a while, you have stage experience. Are you more comfortable now in the room or are you preferring the Zoom audition? What is it for that oh, you like? Well, I haven't, honestly, I haven't done a Zoom audition yet, not live via the internet, but I've done, a, you know, mostly self-tapes right. uh, at home uh, for auditions. And there's a, it's a mixed bag. I, I like self-taping because I can do it enough times. I can control the environment. I can control the pace. The reader is usually my girlfriend and I can ask her to do things differently and do with the casting director. Um, and she's also an actress, so I wouldn't necessarily casting director. Um, but being in the room with a producer or a director who can give you a way to go, sometimes that's helpful, uh, not just because you're getting better information, but because they can see you take the direction. And they can say, oh, I like this guy's easy to work with. He goes with what I, you know, he understands what I'm trying to communicate. And that's always helpful. And I do miss that, not being in the room so much. So how did you get started in acting? What kind of kid were you? Were you a precocious kid? Were you, you know, I believe you're from New York, but you, you went, went down to uh, 
DC, right? Eventually, I was born in Jersey. I was actually born in Passaic and lived in Jersey until I was eight. Uh, and then I moved to Maryland, uh, the suburbs of Washington D.C. in uh, Maryland, Rockville, Maryland. And I grew up there and went to school down there and stayed down in the D.C. area until I was in my late twenties. Uh, and then I moved back to New York, and it felt like home. You know, my, my mom was from Passaic. My dad was from East New York. So it just had a familiar feel to it. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, if you ask my parents, they'll say I came out of the womb with jazz hands. You know, I was already performing at a young age. I was pretty precocious. I was, uh, you know, I was a family of four, all in some way, shape, or form were performers. And so uh, there was a vying for attention that happened. And I think especially between my brother and I, who's also a performer, we, you know, we pushed ourselves. We had to top each other all the time to get attention. And uh, I think that kind of led to just wanting to be in front of the camera, wanting to be in front of people on stage. And yeah, I think I knew at a very young age that this is what I was going to do. And I, I rarely ever had any doubt that this was really what I was supposed to be doing. Now, in high school, were you involved with theater? Because I grew up, I mean, I grew up in a nice town, Cherry Hill. And there was actually a very good theater department, a teacher named Robert Nation. And I wasn't involved. I ended up doing stand-up comedy, but that was just from after I got out of college and I didn't want to get a sales job, and I figured it'd be funner on the road. But did you did you get involved in high school? I mean, when did you start getting on stage? I started getting on stage before high school. My, my father, who worked for IBM, you know, he wasn't a theater guy, and uh, uh, he got involved with community theater in the D.C. area. <clears throat> and it was a very family-oriented community theater there were a lot of families involved and so we got involved behind the scenes i remember you know when i was young i was helping take tickets or sell concessions pulling nails out of boards hanging lights running sound i did you know we did everything there and i got on stage there first probably in a couple little shows my family performed my my three siblings and i performed at uh, nursing homes and my, my mother was a volunteer at nursing homes in the DC area so we would go and perform for the elderly residents when I was I don't know 10 9 10 I think it was always something we were doing we were always performing so I got involved with the theater there and then I uh, when I was about 13 14 years old I did a television show in the Washington DC area called powerhouse it was a uh, uh, educational television show for PBS 16 episodes until Reagan cut the funding. So that was the end of the educational uh, experience of that show. But it was it was a great 16 episode series. I thought it was really effective dealing with, you know, preteen issues. And uh, I was basically in that camp. So I did that. And that was a professional first professional gig. But then I went right back to high school and didn't do anything else until I was out of college. I was just doing high school and college theater. Now, when you did that show, do you think because you were younger, you didn't have really any inhibitions to be in front of a camera? Because it has to be daunting. I know you were in nursing homes and you were in here and there, but then all of a sudden you're on a on a set. It's not like you're. It's not like you're. You know, your aunt filming you. You know, it's you're sitting there on a set. And I think a lot of times when people are younger, they have no inhibitions. I would I would meet comics who were like sixteen in Philadelphia. And they wouldn't care. And we'd be sitting there going over our notes, going, oh, screw up, we're going to get canceled. And these kids would just be like going up and crazy. What was it like for you? Did you just say, did, were you just oh, yeah. yourself? Oh, I'm just so happy to be performing in front of people. I, I had supreme confidence in myself back then. And I was thinking I would get every job that came my way. And I knew I was destined to do it. 
imagine my surprise when I became a, <laughs> when I got into the professional business and, and the numbers aren't the same. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was very confident back then and cocky and, and uh, precocious to a fault. I think I annoyed a lot of people. As many as people as I entertained, I probably annoyed. But uh, yeah, it was definitely, uh, uh, I remember it really fondly. And, and, you know, I never had to leave school. I was, I worked two weeks out of the month off and on never had to leave seventh eighth grade and still was able to maintain my schoolwork and it was shot near home so i was home every night it was fantastic do you think that somewhat can hinder someone just for the fact that you got the job at such a young age as you said you learn later in the business isn't you don't get every job but do you think that because it became somewhat easy to you do you think as you were going up through the ranks did that make it harder or tougher on you i mean were you you know, you weren't getting rejected right off the bat. Sure. Um, what helped was after I did the television series, I didn't really have ambition to do more television. I had ambition to continue performing, whatever whatever that meant. So when I left, when that show finished, I didn't go, well, let's do more of this. I just went, oh, we're going to high school and I'm going to do musicals. This is great too. So I, I felt like I was always grounded in, really just enjoying doing the jobs it wasn't as much um an ego-driven ambition after that it was really just i wanted to be around theater people around performers in front of an audience no matter what the audience was uh and and so that kind of kept me sane but i think for anybody who comes up you know you always hear about the people who went to high school and were the big deal and then they get to college and beyond and they realize oh i mean whether it's sports or you know, something with creative arts, there's always this, oh, there's a lot of talented people out here. I thought, I thought I was the only one. And I think, you know, when I got to college, especially, and I ran into like incredibly talented people that I was going to school with, things changed for me. And I, but I wasn't competitive. I mean, I was competitive with myself. I, I love being around creative people. So it was really that the fact that there were more creative people around was exciting to me because it meant more ways to create and do things. Um, the world of, uh, I never got, you know, I never doubted that this is what I was supposed to be doing. That never crossed my mind. It still doesn't cross my mind. I still think this is very much what I was meant to be doing and never thought about changing directions. So it was hard, but I think that separates a lot of the times the people who continue in this business and the people who drop out of this business is the people who continue in this business are masochists and they don't, they can deal with the rejection over and over and over and over again without dropping the faith. I know many, many incredibly talented people who just did not pursue it this way and God bless them. It's not, it's not for everybody. Have you ever lost the faith? Have you ever sat there? I mean, I know you said, you know, you're always going to do this and you've been very successful, but is there any point in your career you know, where you just you're going to an audition, or the old story I always I always love about a lot of actors is they'll get a pilot, and they're so upset that the pilot didn't get picked up. But to the people that don't get pilots, they're like, "You got a damn pilot! You should be happy." And sometimes you hear people who you know they get pilot after pilot after pilot, they never get picked up, and it's frustrating, and they start probably losing their faith. Going, you know what? I mean, they're making a living; they're constantly getting that pilot money. But after a while, they're like. This really sucks. Has there been any time in your career where you're like, "This really sucks, man"? I'm, I'm, I just, and and I just can't deal with it. Is there any one mental time that did it to you? Sure, we call that Tuesday. 
this is this is what I'm talking about. It's like there's a fortitude that you have to rely on that is uh, not easy to find sometimes to to continue in this business because you know people say, oh, you're on TV all the time. I'm like, for every job you see me get, there are 10, 12, 15 jobs that I auditioned for and didn't get. Some were great jobs, some were one-offs, some I'm like, how could they not cast me in that? Some are, you know, uh, some are, oh, that was a long shot anyway, but I really wished I had that one. So you just have to, it's really just a matter of you keep going and you keep going. But, you know, I was on the practice for two years and it was supposed to be one episode. It turned into 30 episodes. I have nothing but love for that show and that opportunity. I'm so lucky to have had that opportunity the way it unfolded. But I got killed off that show. And when I found out that I was my character was dying, of course I thought, it's me. I'm a terrible actor. He hated what I did. He gave me 30 episodes, but that then he figured it out. He figured out that I'm a sham and no one likes my work. And it took him 30 episodes, but he finally figured it out. So we always go. It's like the being an actor when did you find out was it when did you find out you were dying and then did it did it change your attitude going to work because it's like oh you know screw this i'm you know the story so i found out that i was getting killed as i was walking out of my shrink's office which was great because then i could just turn around and go right back in um you know uh david kelly uh who you know created the show and is the the writer for the show he he made the call and told me and he's he's a bit elusive so when david kelly calls you it, it's not it's either great news or terrible news <laughs> so he, he called me he told me that i was getting killed and he told me why he said i just i'm not sure where else to go with this character and i think i said well i've got some ideas but he wasn't interested in my ideas and he said i wanted to tell you the script's coming out next week don't don't please don't tell anybody because we need it to be it's the hundredth episode so it's a big deal we want it to be a surprise I'm like okay great and then I just started getting very depressed about the whole thing it's like you're getting uninvited to Thanksgiving dinner so you know I had all these friends on the show behind the scenes on the you know that I worked with on camera and I wasn't gonna be able to hang out with them anymore and of course the money was going away too and I just found out that uh, I was about to be a father so that was really bad timing but I, I I went to work. I remember the, the day that the day that I was going to work to get uh, the the day they were actually doing the event where I get shot. I driving down the highway and thinking to myself, you know, if I just don't take this exit and I just keep going, I could be in Mexico in like two hours. What are they gonna? <laughs> of course, I thought, oh, they just kill me off camera. They just, you know, something would happen. So. I couldn't get out of it. I went to work. I tried really hard to be sullen. I put in headphones and listened to sad music. And I kind of hunched over a lot and tried to be a loner. That lasted about an hour because I love being on set. I loved and it was like, oh, I'm just going to enjoy the process. And of course, the crazy part is they do the whole death scene where I get, you know, I have to do the whole Sonny Corleone in the toll booth thing and, you know, and then death mask facing the camera. And uh, then I have to come back the next day and shoot courtroom scenes because they shoot everything out of order. So 
it was it was just weird. I, I think I wrote a story about it. I called it Dead Man Walking. Dead Man, Dead Man Working. Because I was working the next day after I got killed. So, uh, But it was fascinating. It was a fascinating time. Now, you got it was a blaze of bullets, a whole thing of bullets. Do you worry, like, if you don't get that in one take? Because you, yeah. you probably have squibs. Did you have squibs? Do squibs hurt? Well, they didn't do squibs for me. They didn't have any blood on me during that bit because it was all about the car exploding and, and me doing this. They put the squibs on later. Uh, they, they added blood later for the, the close-ups. Um, but it was a lot going on. And I do remember that the guy who was running the the safety for all the special effects was like was missing a finger, which was not, you know, reassuring. I'll put it that way. So tells me he comes to the car and he goes, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to hear bang, bang, bang. This tire is going to blow out. This is going to blow up. The window's going to break down here. There's going to be a guy right over there with a pellet gun shooting glass pellets at the windshield. But there's a big piece of three quarter inch plex that you won't feel anything. And this is going to blow. And that you're here that. And I was like, okay, great. And he goes, but don't worry. As long as you're sitting in the car right here, you'll be perfectly safe. And then he yells, everybody clear! <laughs> and people just start scattering in every direction. And I just was like, it's just me, a camera, and a guy on a ladder with a pellet gun. And <laughs> you, you better get just do the thing and die, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and they did. They got it in one take. So it was lucky. Now, how did you get to the point of getting the, the role in the practice? You said you went to college. When you got out of college, what what was your ambition? You seem to be someone who really likes stage. But I know a lot of times actors sit there and they start doing stage and they go, well, I love stage, but there's just, there's not a lot of money in stage. I mean, you know, I, see, I hadn't really thought about pursuing television and film. I, I Again, I was very comfortable in the D.C. area. The theater scene was beautiful down there. Great community. It still is. Still have many, many friends in the D.C. theater community. So I was busy. I was working. I had an audience. What did I care how much money I was making or how much, you know, you know how many people saw it? I was happy in front of these people I was in front of. And then uh, I think my brother and sister-in-law moved to New York. And so I went to visit them, and I started thinking, maybe this is a good idea. And then I went through a breakup in D.C. with a woman, and that was like, well, I guess I should try this now. I moved to New York and got nowhere really fast. Couldn't get an agent. I was doing commercials, which was good money, but it was nothing else going on. And I started creating my own material, a lot of comedy, a lot of sketch comedy, not, not stand-up, but I was doing a lot of sketch comedy, and I was really ambitious about it. So a buddy of mine and I created a two-man show, did it in New York a bunch of times, took it to L.A., was able to get an agent out there, was able to get make a little noise. And the next thing you know, I was moving to L.A. and checking it out. Somehow, you know, I remember a, 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 somebody said to me, my, an agent that I had back at the time said to me, if you want to be a series regular on a television show, you got to you know, audition a lot, you get to know the casting people, you'll do a bunch of smaller parts, then you'll do some bigger parts, and then you'll get auditions for pilots and then maybe you'll do a couple pilots and then you'll be a series regular and i remember thinking to myself i'm 32 i don't want to i don't want to wait <laughs> i don't want to do that luckily my agent got me in for an audition for a drama which was you know i was out there doing comedy but she didn't tell them that and she told me that i was a new york theater actor i hadn't done anything in new york but there you go got me this audition for this one-off role on the practice 
they needed a Napoleonic needle in in the eye, and that was me. And he liked what I did, so he kept writing for me. And the next thing you know, it was two years later. So you never know with this business. I, I tell young people who are getting into this business the same thing. I said, anybody who tells you how this business works is lying because nobody knows how this business works. For every story you hear of how this is how it works, I can give you 10 examples of ways it, it worked a different way. So just pursue, 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 create, 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 and be in the right place at the right time. That's pretty much how it works in this business. Now, you said you'd done some commercials. What were some of the commercials you were doing? Oh, God. I did a bunch of Lincoln Mercury when there were Lincoln Mercury commercials. I had a whole series of those commercials. I had cereal commercials, New York Lotto commercials. Uh, there was a store, if you remember the store, Nobody Beats the Whiz. I had a whole bunch of Nobody Beats the Whiz commercials. I mean, uh, just so many different commercials. And then voiceover, of course, there was a lot of voiceover work that was kind of regular gigs here in New York for a while. It all kind of dried up and changed uh uh, around there was a strike around 2000 for commercials, which kind of took the air out of it. And then, um, and digitalization changed a lot of things because people started to be able to do voiceovers from anywhere in the country. You didn't have to be going to audition rooms here in New York. You could do it from the comfort of your own home. So it changed a lot. Now, when, when you left the practice, when you were killed, what direction were you thinking of going in? Cause as you said, you were a comment. I mean, you were, a comedy team and I know actors acting is acting you know comedy drama doesn't make a difference but for someone who was doing comedy you, you were getting a reputation of getting comedy chops and getting the chops and then you're in the practice where it's a more serious show what direction did you want to go in and did you sit there did you have a manager or agent say you know what we, we think you should go this way or what did what did you do when the practice ended I hope for more jobs like the practice I, I really assumed that uh the success that I had there was going to lead to more success. And it led to other small opportunities, but it didn't lead to anything like the practice, no leads. No, I had a couple of pilots or parts on pilots that didn't happen. And that's, you know, that's the business that's normal. But I think I started getting very frustrated in LA. I started feeling like, uh, you know, I got that, that, that LA attitude that happens if you stay there too long. I always say, and I don't know if I fully believe this anymore, but I used to say that, um, LA is a, a great place to work, but but a terrible place to live. You know, you can live in LA. You can live in LA for your entire life, but if you actually live there, like if you take it like it's if you take it seriously, you know, LA is Disney World. Everything's fake. It's not. There's really nothing real there. It's beautiful, but you know, a lot of this the entire place is based on the idea of making things up. So. You know, you can go to Disney and have a great time, but you can't live in the places on Main Street, you know. So if you start thinking that I could live here, you've lost something. So I, I love it out there. And I actually could see myself living out there, but not ever really taking it as seriously as, as it, people take it. So, But I got to that point, And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll give you an example, is I got to the point where I started to believe my own hype out there, you know, so I start. I was, I was a, a regular on an Emmy award winning television show. I should be getting great scripts. I should be doing more work. I don't want to do this crappy job. Who wants to do that crappy job? I'm this person. And of course that'll eat you alive. So eventually I had to get, a move. uh, it just was too, I was too anxious about the work. 
taking myself too seriously. I was taking the world too seriously. I was taking LA too seriously. So I left. I came back to New York around 2004, 2005. And then uh, I, uh, the mother of my child and I parted ways and uh, we lived in the same city and raised a kid. My son is now 19. <laughs> like I said, he's at he's university in, in, uh, he's in Pennsylvania for school. Uh, but I met somebody soon after that who lives in LA. So <laughs> of course, I was very happy in LA. So, uh, and she grew up in New York, but she couldn't wait to get out. And so she's, she and I go back and forth. Now we live in New York part of the time and in LA part of the time. And I've grown to really kind of, uh, to like LA, but again, you can like LA, you can enjoy it. Like Disneyland, you can go on all the rides, you know, and you can stay there for weeks at a time, but you, you, you just can't take it that seriously. Yeah. I, I lived, I lived in LA for 18 years and 15 in Burbank and Burbank is great. Burbank reminds me of Cherry Hill where I grew up, but it's the same thing. You know, when you're sitting there and people don't understand, you know, people see TV and they see Hollywood Boulevard and they go, Oh, and I go, no, Hollywood Boulevard's a shithole. And I, I say, you know, and you see, Oh, Malibu. And I go, yeah, well, you know, we could watch a TV show and they'll say a cop go from Hollywood Boulevard to Bel Air in, in 10 minutes. I'm like, no, it takes about two hours. And that's the thing with LA. You, after a while, I think, you know, it's just, when you're there, there's always, you always have to think. Like, let's say you have an audition or you're something, you go, oh, wait a second. I'm on, it's only 10 miles. I had a friend visit and he's like, oh, I live in Birmingham. He goes, let's go to, let's go to Venice. I go, all right, it's Friday at two in the afternoon. I said, dude, it's going to take us like an hour and a half. Oh no, it's only 20 miles. I said, and it takes you. And that's the thing. A friend of mine said when he moved back, he moved back to New York before I moved back to the Philly area. Once you leave LA, and you probably went through this, it takes you about a month to start to decompress because you're so used to that whole thing where you're like, okay, well, this is only eight miles away, but it might take us two hours and then we're going to miss the start. And then, as you know, when you leave really early, there's always no traffic that one day and you sit there and you're sitting around. Yep. It's uh, say there's only one time there's traffic in LA and that's when you're in your car. Right. <laughs> um, I, I actually remember, and I do believe this still, it's, I, I think in New in New York, you can do 10 things in a day. In L.A., you can do three things in a day. And you do have to plan that out. You can do something in the late morning, something in the early afternoon, either something in the late afternoon or the evening, but not both. So, And once you're home, you don't want to go anywhere. In, in New York, you're out and about and you're doing things and you're going here and you can stop at the bank and you stop at the grocery, friend for coffee, and you're running to somebody on the street. And I just feel like you can accomplish more. You know, but as my girlfriend likes to point out, LA is beautiful. It's a great quality of life. You know, you don't have to schlep everything on your back all the time. You got your car. It's sunny. The sunsets and the, the you know, it's just gorgeous days. You don't have to worry about snow and freezing rain and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I totally, totally respect that. And I got to tell you, when I go on one of the lots there, like uh, the Warner Brothers lot, where I was just working. It's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like walking on one of those lots and just going, this is where all these, the history of this lot, and I'm working here, and it's just, it's like going to college. It's like going to an old campus, and you're like, oh, I know all these, I don't, I recognize everybody, although I don't know anybody. I recognize everybody, and, uh, you know, I was, you know, the uh, I shot a show uh, this year called Be Positive on CBS. Be Positive, the pilot of Be Positive, was filmed on the same stage as where Friends was filmed. 
And so when they just had this reunion episode that aired, uh, you know, on uh, whatever it was, Netflix, HBO, X, whatever it was, they, they're they showing them walk in the stage door. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, I just was in there. That's, it's, it's like part of my life. And to me, it's like this cultural phenomenon. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just worked there the other day. It's not that big a deal. And it's just, it, there's something really kind of magical. And I, I haven't lost my kind of sense of awe of the glitz of Hollywood. I still, I still like finding it when I can find it. Well, with the glitz of Hollywood, as I said, you've been on a lot of shows. And as you said, you were on The Practice. And, you know, David, everyone I know says David Kelly's a prolific writer. And you knew that you knew the crew very well. So you had that camaraderie. When you leave a show like that, where it is, you know, you know, the, you know, the material is going to be right. You know, they know you. They're going to write for you. He, he's a brilliant guy. You know, the, the crew has your back. What is it like when you leave, when you do a show after that, and you're sort of like, this sort of sucks. Like, you know, like like the maybe you're doing a guest star, and, you know, I've heard stories, you know, there's some shows where the actors are great, and there's some shows where they're sort of assholes. And, you know, and you sit there. What is it like when you go, because I always, I always refer to it as, you know, you're on a show like a practice, it's like being in the big leagues. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're still in the big leagues, but you go from the Yankees to, let's say, the Padres. You know, it's like it's different town. What is that like for an actor when right after that, when you probably went on a show or two that wasn't the same experience or you might have not believed in the material, but you still have to sell it? Well, I think right after the practice, like I said, I didn't handle it very well. I think I was lucky about it. And, and, and then you realize, look, you know, it's all part of the same stew. And so you're lucky to, there's so many people, like you said about those people who uh, are series they're series regulars and then they're not, uh, you know, and they, they feel like, oh, you know, not, it won't happen for me. And they complain. I think I, ha- I had to leave L.A. to learn not to complain about that stuff. I think I feel very fortunate to be on a set at any time. I don't like being like, no one wants to be mistreated or no one wants to be disrespected for, you know, their time to be wasted or things like that. But, you know, I'm aware that when somebody hires me and I'm getting paid, you know, I'm, I'm one of a very small percentage of actors that has that experience. Um, so I don't take it for granted anymore. I, I go to work on every show with the same enthusiasm for being there. And if it's a sucky experience, I, I, know over shortly and I'm going to get a paycheck. So I can't complain about it. And, and I have to leave LA to kind of remind myself of that. Now, how do you handle the changing of per se hats? Because you do a lot of drama and you do a lot of sitcoms and you know, it's something that I'm sure when you're prepping for an audition, even though you're a trained actor, there's still, you know, the sitcom, especially, you know, sitcoms, you know, boom, 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 acting while well, be more passive. You know, how do you, how would you prepare for that? And which would you look more forward to just because, I mean, which, and which is more labor intensive? I got no complaints about any of it. Uh, the la- only labor intensive part of acting is memorizing the lines. So, you know, dramas tend towards, uh, the labor in dramas is when you have to say a lot of things at once. When you have a monologue, when, or you have a closing argument as a lawyer, or you have medical stuff that you have no idea what it means if you're doing a doctor on ER, one of those type of shows. Um, and the labor-intensive part of comedy is is being able, especially sitcoms, is being able to 
shift on the fly because sometimes they'll be filming it and they'll say, okay, instead of saying this, say this, this, this. And you go, okay, got it. And make it funny. Okay, got it. And you have to like be able to shift on the fly. But I think it's all what you learn is it's different skills. Uh, I've been somebody in my life, in my life, I've always wanted to do everything. I wanted to be the guy who wrote the thing, the guy who directed the thing, the guy who did the comedy, the drama, the musical, the tap dancing, the Shakespeare, the banjo playing, the ukulele. I, I wanted to do it all. And I still pursue my craft now. I still want to do everything. I'm still constantly like trying to find new ways to create and and so I think that uh, you just as you go along, you learn certain skills. Even on the practice, which was my first real taste of a drama on camera, I remember working with Laura Flynn Boyle, who uh, I adored. I thought she was just professional and. She knew exactly what she was doing and watching her, you know, I learned just, I learned things about, I said to her, you know, when you, when you, you block the scene and they mark your feet where your feet go on the floor so it can be repeated and they can get a measure for the lens of the camera and stuff. And I would look down after we blocked the scene. I'm like, why do I have eight marks and you have one? And she'd say, oh, you don't have to move. The camera moves. And I was like, new lesson so i was picking up things constantly from really really talented people who had been doing it for a while and i think those are learn how far the camera is away from you is going to determine how much you move how loud you are there's there's lots of little tricks you learn in, in those circumstances and with sitcoms understanding where the laughs go understand how to unnaturally hold for a laugh you know in case they want to put one in a joke and nobody laughs you have to learn how to fill those moments so it all just becomes part of a skill set i think over time and shifting between one and the other is just a matter of like opening up a different bag now through your career have your roles that you've auditioned for stayed the same have you always been the lawyer type have you always been the doctor type i mean it's something that you know any anyone who's balding you know that's something that they go oh you know, well, that's good. I mean, I mean, I when I would do stuff in L.A., I'd be like, oh, creepy guy. Okay, well, that's it. And you're always like, oh, God, I got an audition as a creepy guy. Well, that's just great. And then someone else gets it, and you go, well, thank God, because, you know, the guy's a lot creepier than me. But what, what When is... I first moved to New York, my first commercial audition in New York, I remember going into the – they sent me on this – new agent sent me on this commercial audition, and I walk in the room, and I looked around, oh, my God, look at these people – these guys are freaks. This guy's got crazy hair. That guy's way overweight. That guy's real thin. What am I doing here? <laughs> I'm one of them. So, you know, you realize that in television as opposed to theater as much, you realize that they have a lot of options. So they don't need you to stretch and do something that people don't immediately see you as. So, yes, for me, this look, this, you know, this voice, it, it comes across as very, I'm very New York. I'm very Jewish. I'm very, you know, I could be affluent. I'm a little, I've, all, I've been bald since I was in my 20s or slight, somewhat balding. So, you know, the roles I've gotten, doctors, lawyers, rabbis, accountants. But, and I thought about that recently because somebody else had, and they go, does it bother you? You have to do all the same things. I'm like, not of the role is interesting. I'll play an accountant. But, you know, the accountant I did on Halston is going to be a very different accountant than I did on, you know, uh, a sitcom. 
you know, before that. And the doctor that I played on Be Positive is very different than the doctor I played on The Undoing. You know, and you, you so you have to find the, the the character outside of the profession. I think, uh, and if you can, you can find what I hate. Actually, or I shouldn't say hate. What I'm really, I'm really not interested in are generic types. You know, this is a lawyer that says three things, and they're pretty generic law things. There's nothing there. There's really nothing there except I look like lawyer. And I might do, I might not do it. I might, you know, see if the money's worth doing. But most of the time, the characters in the last few years that I've gotten to play, luckily, have had really interesting scenes. So as an actor, it's like, oh, well, this is a great scene. I actually just auditioned, put myself on tape for a low-budget movie that doesn't pay much at all, and it might cost me if I have to travel myself to the location. But I looked at the scenes, and I was like, oh, you know what? These are pretty good scenes. This is a campaign manager, but it's a really interesting campaign manager. So sometimes it's the role that takes the precedence. Now, at at this point in your career, what's the percentage of offers and auditions? I know it's like people go through stuff. I mean, people could be on a hit show for a while, and then... I happened to one actor right now, and he's like, "Wait a second, I'm, I'm a, it was Patrick Fabian said I'm a better call Saul." And he and he had to audition for Veep, and he's and he had to park in the crappy yacht, the the Orange Grove lot or whatever it is, and he's like sitting there going, "Wait a second, you know, I mean, so and once again, sometimes people have to audition. What is your percentage? Are, are you are you do you get a lot of offers, or do you have to audition, or how does it work out? I, it always depends on the director and the casting director and who's doing it. Uh, there are casting directors that'll go to bat for you with a director and say, just give it to Jason. You, here's his work. He'd be great in this. And there are some directors like, oh, yeah, him, great. Some people are like, no, I need to see him read it. I need to see him read it. And that happens for most actors. I mean, even way advanced, they're, they're, the director might say, you know, I know Julia Roberts for this but I really need to you know she might not want to do it that's her call but um, I got I get offers here and there and when I get them I'm very I feel very lucky <laughs> but I've done for example Chuck Lorre shows Chuck Lorre has a whole slew of shows and I did my first Chuck Lorre show about five years ago uh, it was called uh uh, I can't remember the name. It's so strange, but it was about uh, it was about a, a marijuana dispensary in uh, in uh, and it was Kathy Bates was starring there, and I auditioned for that that role. I've done five different Chuck Lorre shows since then. Some of them like be positive with characters that recur multiple times. I auditioned for every one of them. There was never an offer, and I know Chuck likes my work, and I know he knows what I do, but he wants to see it. And who am I to begrudge him that? He's you know. This is great. I'm happy to be in, in front of them. So, and then you get something like Halston, which was a fascinating story for me because uh, with COVID and, and things, they auditioned me for Halston came out just now. We shot it in November of 2020. I auditioned for Halston in October, November of 2019. It was a year between the audition and the job. I auditioned for a completely different role. And didn't hear anything. And then, of course, they started, and then COVID, and then they picked up again in the fall. 
And I get a call saying, yeah, they want you for Halston. They want you to do this job. And I'm like, oh, that was a good role. And they're like, you're not doing that role. What role am I doing? They want you to play this Carl Epstein character. And I'm like, what's a Carl Epstein? I don't know anything about this. Then I watched a documentary and I was like, oh, that's Carl Epstein. Oh, that's a decent that's a decent character in this thing. But they didn't have me read for it. I had no idea. They just had seen my work in other things. And they'd seen me read for a different role. So they didn't need to check. They didn't need to make sure. So when I came, got in that day, they they said, okay, great. Here's Ewan. Nice to meet you. Let's go uh, rehearse. And I said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna do the New York accent because that's the accent. And they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, we believe you. We're happy you're here. So lucky me. I had somebody who really was. That's a rare, rare event in my life. And I think in a lot of people out getting offers, you have to be. You have to be a big A-lister for things now, like that. Now, what's it like playing a real someone in real life? Like, also, you were a Madoff, so you, you played real-life characters. What is that like? I mean, do you study them, or do you sit there and think, I want to bring my own, my own pizzazz to them? There's a reason why they booked me for this job, because they like what I did. But then sometimes it must be getting your head going, but I want to be right for the person. It really depends on how uh, how much of a match they want. For example, they cast me as Carl Epstein partially because I do look a little like Carl Epstein. I could, you know, like, I'd like to say a younger Carl Epstein, but who knows? But they they booked me as Carl Epstein, and I looked at his accent, which is Borough Park, Brooklyn, and I was. There's no way I could walk on set and be believable going Holston. You know, <laughs> it's like I'm New York in me. But it, if I was trying to do Carl Epstein's voice like this, this is how he talks. Holston, you can't just do this. You know, I'm like, I can't do that. So I had to make, I had to put it in my own voice. On top of that, with a show like Holston, they, they wrote the version of Carl Epstein that they wanted for this story. Carl Epstein is a, I mean, when you look up Carl Epstein's autobiography or just any kind of, uh, stories about him. Simon Halston was a very small part of his life. He was known as a memorabilia collector. He collected Civil War memorabilia and knows everything about battles and that and lived in Teaneck and worked for about 15 different companies as a manager. This Halston was a pit stop on his way. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't his whole life. But for this show, Halston, this had to be a huge, important focus of Carl Epstein's life, so they had to define him in a certain way because they wanted it to be a big part of Halston's life. So, yeah, I couldn't do Carl Epstein the way Carl Epstein really is. It wouldn't have made any sense for the dialogue they were giving me. So, to a certain extent, I had to shift and give them what they wanted. And that's usually the case with television and film. Rarely do you see people trying to do... I mean, even Ewan McGregor was doing a fantastic Halston, but you can't capture his whole life and every layer of Halston because it wasn't in the script. You had five episodes to pull this off. And he had to do an arc, so broad strokes, maybe. Um, so, you know, we all do the best we can within within the limits of the script we're given. Now, was Ewan in character off-screen? Because he was great in it. And it, was he always in character? Because sometimes actors, when they play someone real, you can't snap him out of it. You know, when they're the star, you can't get him out of it. What was he like off-set, like not off-camera? Yeah, I see a lot of, like, the Daniel Day-Lewis and people who have to stay and maintain, he was not like that at all. He was funny. 
we joked around, we talked current events, we made each other laugh, we, you know, told jokes, and then tease each other a little bit, and then we get, as soon as the camera rolled, in, and he was great. He was just, he was just fantastic at it. So I really enjoyed my time with him. I'm not the kind of actor stay in the role the entire time and uh and i'm glad he wasn't either it just made it more fun now what was curb like when you shot curb curb was nerve-wracking uh you know i was in season eight so it was uh already very well established and uh the director bob whitey came up to uh the trailer before i shot and he said hi i just want to introduce myself and i just want to tell you uh how this is going to work um just do what you did in the audition. Just do the scenes. If if we like what you're doing, you won't know it. We won't tell you. But if we don't like what you're doing or Larry stops and wants you to do something different, don't take it personally. Just roll with it. Do your change. Make your go on. And sure enough, the very first scene I was working uh, I was in the scene, in the episode I was married to uh, the actress uh, Maggie Wheeler. Janice on Friends, if you remember her from that. But she and I were having a conversation, and Larry walks up to us. That was the scene. And we're talking about a golf tournament. So when he comes up, I start talking about the golf tournament. Oh, I'm really excited about the golf tournament. I got a new driver. Did I tell you you got a new driver? And he goes, cut, cut, cut. Don't talk about the, hear about the driver. Just cut that, cut that. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> and so I changed the subject to something else. And then after that was over, they were like, okay, moving on. And Maggie said, I think, I think that was okay. She's like, I think it was. They're, they're moving on. So that was fascinating. And But I think the most my favorite part of working on Curb was, um, was working with uh, Bob Einstein, who played uh, Funk, Funkhauser, uh, who the, the recently departed Bob Einstein, who I just adored. Um, he had this kind of practical joker mentality about things it's to me like um, I'll try to do his voice as best I can he would say hey do you want to come back and recur on this show uh, sure Bob why wouldn't I I'll you do it wait till Larry's talking to somebody else then go up and tap him really hard on the shoulder like this when he turns around just say can't wait to see what my does next he'll love it you'll be back every week (laughs) and he did variations on that for the entire time we shot and i just it was so fun i just felt like i had to keep a journal of all the fun things that happened with those that group of people it was really it was very fun to do improv with with them they were of course everything is it's it's shaped everybody knows what's going to happen in a scene but within that everything's improvised and that was just a treat real treat now, you know what's interesting? You've, you've been on SVU twice, but I believe different characters. Now, it's just amazing. Like, you know, we still watch that show, and, and you, you go, you know, like every once in a while you'll be flipping around TV and you'll see, like, the first season, and, you know, it's since then the DNA and everything has changed completely, like the crimes. But what is that like when you do a character? And, like, especially now, I know years ago people could do a few different Law & Orders, a few of that, but then all of a sudden... You know, they said, oh, you can't do that. It's like background. They're like, oh, well, you can't be on a show, you know, within two weeks. Well, it's why, because if they're in a supermarket, I mean, I go to the supermarket every other day. I have 
different supermarkets I go to. But what is it like when you go and you do an SVU, and then years later, you, you must be thinking it's natural. You've been in so many shows. Even, you know, the great shows you've been in. You know, you've been in Grey's. Grey's is still going. But it's that's far and few between it, these shows going. I mean, what is that like when you sit there and when you go back? Like, SVU, was it... I mean, Mariska's been there the whole time, and Ice-T's been there, but is the crew a lot of the same people, or how does it... Probably, but I don't remember if I... I didn't remember any of them, and I'm not sure any of them remembered me. I mean, that was... Uh, it felt like an, a completely new show, because the first episode I did, you know, I worked with Maris- Mariska, and she was great, and that was fun. And this next one, I basically worked with Ice-T, so I had never worked with either one of them you know, before or since. So it felt like an entirely new show. It was also, I think, what made it very specific. I, I don't know what, I know people who've done three or four or five Law and Orders, um, but this one was very specific. It was the first job I had back from COVID uh, since since the reopening. And it was in October and there was a lot of, you know, new things to learn about with masks and how you get tested and when you get tested. Uh, and, and it was complicated. And so I think that made it a little more uh, new experience. So it didn't feel like going back on the same old soundstage with the same old people. Everybody had masks on. I wouldn't recognize anybody anyway. Um, I mean, everybody handled it really well. I give kudos to that that set. Uh, they There were some sets I've been on that were better than others at, at the COVID restrictions and keeping the actors safe. Because when you think about it, we're the only ones who have to take off our masks and uh, at any given time. And so really important to me to feel protected i had my son and my girlfriend are here and i didn't want to have to bring anything home from the set so that didn't feel weird to me so much it did it always feels weird to me that you're doing this that the same shows have been around 20 years that just freaks me out (laughs) it really freaks me out Grays is still going i can't even believe that you know but dick wolf stuff just goes and goes and goes which i guess is why he gets to do more what is crafty like now now that now it's changed, I mean, do you just, it used to be, and people, if you don't know, Crafty is basically all the food's out, and, you know, you go out and you grab the stuff, and everyone takes those damn granola bars and puts them in their backpack, takes them home with them. But what's yeah. it like now to get Crafty, and and actually the food service, because it was, you know, some shows fed you very great, and you would sit there, and they'd feed you, and you get to sit down. What is that like now? Uh, in general, craft services behind plexiglass, and you have to ask for things uh, from the from the people who are serving the craft service. You can't just grab and go. Um, most of the time, that stuff is prepackaged, so it's not the same, you know, kind of fun and fancy. Oh, just grab this and grab some locks and grab a donut. Grab it. It's like no, you have to ask for what you want, and they have to serve it to you in a specific way. Um, and food services again. Uh, they pre things come to you prepackaged, so you're ordering in advance, but they're getting it from somewhere else. The package before it even gets on set, so it, it's it takes a little out of it. No actor I know hates craft service. It was the place you go and you peck around, and you're like, oh, I never I never buy M and M's, but why not have a handful of M and M's? I'm here, I'm working, it's great. It's probably saved me. A- over the course of the last six months, <laughs> but it was—it's uh, different. Everything's a bit different. Again, some had some places handled it better than others, and I—I uh, uh, I felt for the most part, and everything I've been working on since October, I felt pretty taken care of. Now, you know, you've had a very successful and long career. You're what we could say a survivor. You know, I know th- thousands of people go to LA. I talked to different actors who go. You know, in the beginning, there was a bunch of us, and then. 
over the years it starts dwindling 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 and now we're all very supportive of each other because back then we're like we wanted to roll but now we're very happy because these people are lessers who is who is the group of guys that you would run into in auditions like through the years that did that stayed in the business i mean it's hard to say. Uh, there were, again, a, there's such a variety of people who would go in for roles that I would go up for. But there's a certain group of actors here in New York that I I was uh, personally, I, I was always disappointed when I didn't get to audition for something that other people like me were auditioning for. But once we're all there and auditioning, if somebody else gets it, there's nothing I could have done. And usually I'm, I'm happy for that person. So I've never really been competitive with other actors in that way. So I've become friends with a lot of the same people that are in my category. And uh, so and a bunch of those guys, I still play poker with on a regular basis. We do it online now, but uh, we still keep in touch that way. We go to each other's houses before COVID and now we're connect again. Um, there's a couple of specific actors who I get mistaken for every once in a while. But again, I become friends with them as well. <laughs> I, I think it, I can see how there was more of a competitive nature back in the day. Uh, the competitive nature I usually had was with people that I didn't know that were getting roles that I didn't get to audition for, or they were farther along than me, or they were getting offers for roles that I would have liked to audition for. But once I meet some of these, most of these actors, if they're not competitive with me, uh, then I have no beef with their success. I mean, it's, I think we're all very lucky to still be working in this situation. And, you know, being a middle-aged white guy right now is, you know, it's funny. You'd think, you know, with everything going on and changes in the world, I've heard a lot of actors that would audition for roles that I would audition for complain, you know, and say, well, it's not fair. The business has changed and we're not getting the jobs anymore. It's true, but it's not. I mean, I think white guys used to represent 75% of all the jobs on television. And now we represent like 65. It's not like it hasn't changed all that much. Um, so, you know, we, we believed early on that we would be constantly working for the rest of our lives and that hasn't really borne out in the same way. I mean, I, I certainly thought that I would have more opportunities to be series regular on shows over the years and it, that has not borne out. I haven't, you know, pilots are completely elusive to me. They don't, they don't show up. And a lot of times it's because they're trying to have a more diverse cast and roles that I might've auditioned for in the past aren't available to me, but I can only be, um, you know, grateful for the changes and grateful for the opportunities I get. I still have some, which is, which is saying something. Who do you play poker with? I always wonder what actors playing poker are like. Because when you know, I did stand up. Whenever stand ups would get in the same room, you know, everyone's always like standing up and trying to out talk each other because it's that competitiveness of on the stage. Even though we're best friends, you know, you, you, if you ever you'll notice this next time you're in a room of there's a few stand up comics and they always stand up when they're talking because they're so used to standing up. Who like who do you play poker with, and what's the game like? Uh, play poker with guys I've known for decades now who uh, probably knew each, most of them knew each other before I knew them, but, uh, Matt Servito, who was a, uh, if you may remember as, uh, uh, Agent Harris on The Sopranos, and he's been on Banshee and Millions, and, uh, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, or Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, I think that's the name of the Adult Swim show, he plays Satan, incredibly prolific actor, and, uh, you know, character guy like me, um, 
He's part of the game. Richard Topol, who uh, has done some uh, tele- television as well, but is probably uh, better known for doing a lot of theater in New York, a ton of theater, including he just, uh, you know, he did a, a Broadway show called Indecent. He was kind of the lead of that ensemble, uh, and he was got a lot of praise for that. Um, and then uh, an actor named Benham Foster does a ton of commercials, um, and then you know a few mixed bag other people. We have a clarinet player, we have a director, we have a writer, uh, uh, people. We have a, prof- a theater professor who used to be an actor and, and changed careers. So it really is like a, it's a real mixed bag. Um, we of course all of us can out talk each other without a doubt. <laughs> Jokes. Oh, Chris Jones, who's another uh, fabulous. Uh, actor has been doing theater in new york for decades um so everybody's got a story everybody's got something to share and you know we've seen each other pretty much weekly since we 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 used to play more regularly and then everybody had kids and moved and we it made it very difficult to play more than like once a year and then with covid we started playing uh because one of the actors uh, one of the people got covid you know, last March. So we were like, let's cheer him up by playing poker. He's just lying around. We'll play poker. And it just, we've seen each other almost every week since and, and to it. It's really, it's just fun. One final question. Sure. Through your career, you know, you've, I said, you've worked with so many different shows. You know, the, you were on the Michael J. Fox show. You were just in Hunters. Who are some of the people you've worked with that you sat there and went, holy crap, I'm working with this person. I mean, is there, Anyone that just, you were like awestruck and then maybe a little bit nervous. Well, sure. Al Pacino and Hunter's just right off the bat. That's, that's phenomenal. I did, a, I did a reading of a movie with Robert De Niro that was blowing my mind. Um, but there were others that kind of came out of the woodwork. Uh, the old actor James Whitmore was on the practice once in a, in a series of jobs and just, just so entertaining to talk with him and, conversations with him about the world of the business and uh but i've gotten to work with just a lot of my heroes betty white I got to work with betty white got to talk to her oh and on that set was hot in cleveland and you know getting a hug from valerie bertinelli just kind of like melted me <laughs> it's like any kid who grew up with one day at a time was like you know, I have pictures that make people jealous. I gave her a hug and she put her head on my shoulder and I was like, this is just Valerie Bernelli over here. <laughs> I've also gotten to work with Woody Allen, Ethan Cohen, and some theater work and just kind of its own, you know, Elaine May, just one, a genius, an idol. So I've gotten very lucky to work with some just fantastic artists and, and writers and it's it seems it always seems fleeting to me. It's like never long enough. Never never got to work long enough with anybody. Um, but even Ewan McGregor was was a real you know amazing moment for me to be able to work one on one with a guy who's a bona fide movie star. So now Halston's on Netflix. Where else can what else do you have anything coming up that people can look for you in? Sure, uh, there's a show called Why Women Kill on Plus. I'm going to. I've done a couple episodes of those in the later part of the season. Um, Be Positive is in reruns right now, I'm sure. Um, and uh, uh, there's a show on Netflix right now called uh, Startup, which uh, was uh, originally on Crackle uh, TV. And it was uh, shot a few years ago, and I'm in one episode of that 
with uh, uh, just a, a really, a really, you know, great opportunity to work on that show. Plus, it shot in Puerto Rico, which was the best. <laughs> it was a lovely place to go to work. Well, that's awesome. And now you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram, and all the other places. Oh, well, people, please. Go to IMDb, check out Jason's work, and when you check it out, then go watch it. Go watch Halston. And, so, and you, as soon as you see it, you go, oh my God, that's I see him in everything. So it's people, that guy. Exactly. Yeah. Check out Jason. Uh, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.